0: All right, well, it's good to see you out here tonight. Um, Wasn't that a great time of worship? Just being in the presence of the Lord and reminded of the truths of the word of God and our salvation. Well, we've been moving through the book of Leviticus, so you can turn over there to the last chapters of this book. Leviticus 24 through 27 is the plan. Um, I've got to keep pace here. If you haven't joined us on a... Our um, Wednesday night study, and sometime just a reminder that uh, the pace of the Wednesday night study, um, you know, we're going to try and cover chapters 24 through 27. Um, I can't read every single word of that, that's just too much uh, to try and cover. So, this is a survey type of a Bible study where my, my desire, my heart, is to make the book of Leviticus accessible to you, to try and break it down into some sections and chapters, uh, divisions, not chapter, I guess verse divisions, and then giving you that place to kind of zero in and, and consider a little bit more. Some of these obvious places where we see um, the Lord and how he fulfilled that uh, aspect of the law. We're going to take some time to zero in on that. And then there's some places at times where we, we find something that's just kind of, you read it and it's like, wow, that's, that's different. That's not the way I think. And I don't understand what's going on here. And And so I I think we're going to have one of those passages tonight. So we're going to take a little bit of time to to stop and camp out. I don't know that I'm going to resolve the entire issue. I pretty much can guarantee you I won't. But we're we're at least going to glean as much scriptural information around that topic when we get to it as we possibly can. So that's kind of the plan for tonight. Let's go ahead and pick up Leviticus chapter 24. And we're going to read verses 1 through 4. We read, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the children of Israel that they bring to you pure oil of pressed olives for the light to make the lamps burn continually. Notice how many times we find this word continually. Outside the veil of the testimony in the tabernacle of meeting, Aaron shall be in charge of it from evening until morning before the Lord. Continually it shall be a statute forever in your generations. He shall be in charge of the lamps on the pure gold lampstand before the Lord continually. So I mean, there's a, three times continually and one forever, you get the idea that these lights should never ever go out. And we'll talk a little bit about that uh, more. But this was, uh, we're gonna read of some privileges and responsibilities that these priests had. Here's one responsibility. That the sons of Aaron had, they had to keep the lamps burning. It's it's that menorah that was there, um, not in the most holy place, but just outside the veil. So the most holy places where the ark of the covenant is, you have a veil, and outside of that, you had um, these. Uh, well, of course, in Solomon's temple, you had these solid walls, but in the tabernacle, you had layered, um, different material fabrics over there. So if you didn't have the lamp, you weren't going to see what was going on in there. So, I mean, on one hand, it's, just re- it's really practical um, that you might be able to see. But there's also something more than that. This represents the eternal light of the Lord that, should, that has never gone out nor will ever go out and never fails to illuminate and to give us guidance and direction. In John chapter 10, verse 22, we find Jesus at a feast that's called the Feast of Dedication. You know this better by the name, anybody know? Hanukkah. And so it's, it's at the Feast of Dedication, which I'm going to explain to you in just a moment. Jesus was at this non-mandatory feast. So we read of the seven mandatory last week. You don't remember me mentioning that one, and you don't remember reading it. But this was another feast that they had. It was a non-mandatory feast, but it commemorated the cleansing of the temple after uh, a man by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes, so, you know, he, he thought highly of himself. He thought he was an epiphany to everybody. Um, but, the, but he was a crazy man. And the Jews of that day um, changed his name to Antiochus Epimanes, which means crazy guy. And, uh, you know, so that, you know, we, we do these same kind of things and play on words and play on names. And they, they did it too. And so Antiochus Epiphanes or Ep- Epimanes, um, around 165 BC, went into the temple and took a pig and sacrificed it on the altar and desecrated it. This was a terrible time. But finally, um, they were able to kick this guy out and they were able to retake the temple and they were able to reinstitute it. Well, at the time that they did this, they only had one day supply of oil. Now you read as I just did, and they knew it, that it should never go out. But it was going to take some, some time to make this, to dedicate it, and to use proper oil. So as it is recorded in the Apocrypha book of Maccabees, so not in your Bible, but in the Apocrypha book of, of Maccabees, what they record is that miraculously they lit the, that uh, menorah, And it burned for eight days. And so Hanukkah or the Feast of Dedication goes on for for eight days. The significant piece in all this is in John chapter 8, verse 12, during the the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus declared that he was the light of the world and that whoever would follow follow him would not walk in darkness but would have the light of life. That light that was to never go out in the temple was prefiguring the light of Christ. And how he wanted to, to do this, and so Jesus stood um, right in front of this uh, lit, you know, um, menorah, and because um, so you had the one that was inside, but there also was one that supposedly was outside. We don't really read of it in the New ta- in the Bible, but tradition says there might have been one outside that lit the the taber uh, kind of the, the not the tabernacle the uh, courtyard, and that he stood in that place and said, I am the light of the the world. So very significant um, foreshadowing of the light that Christ would bring. So here is what all of that means. In this world, as we try to make our way through it, it can seem really dark at times. It can seem confusing. It can seem like, what do I do? What do I do with my life? How How do I find peace? How do I find joy? And it just seems like you're bumbling through this life in darkness. Well, Jesus wants to bring you light. He wants to give you a clear path on how to live life and how to be in a relationship with him. And so he brings light. Light brings comfort. Light brings um, security. Light brings um, an awareness of the surroundings, and I honestly can't imagine trying to live life on this planet right now without the light of Jesus Christ in my life. I mean, most of us in here are believers and have been believers for quite some time, but I want you, as best as you can right now, to try and extract from your thinking and everything you know of the Lord and what he's brought, and imagine living in this world right now. I mean, you don't know what's going to happen when you die. You don't know what's happening to the loved ones around you. You have, your hope is in what you can see and people and government. And, and, and what do you do with that? And, you know, this is the world and how they feel. This is how we were outside of Christ. Christ is the answer for our lives. And so you got to come to the light. You got to come to Jesus. You have to receive him and, and he'll give you that salvation but then he also just gives light to your everyday walk with him. He shows you where to go. He shows you how to conduct yourself. And I encourage you to follow closely in that light. If you're following Jesus and it seems like everything is getting dark around you, I would ask, how far away are you from him? When's the, are you are you sticking right on his heels? You know, or is it just is he like just this like light that 's shining in the distance, you can see the light and you know the general direction, but you can 't see what 's in front of you. you need to be, you need to stay close to Jesus and um, prayer in the word, um, fellowship together. these are all ways in which that light shines in our everyday life. One well, verses five through nine, another privilege and responsibility the priest had was to take care of the bread of the tabernacle, and so um, you see in verse six, they were to set them, the bread, in two rows, six in a row, which gives you 12. And it was placed on the pure gold uh, table. And that was representing the 12 tribes of uh, Israel. And this is also called the bread of presence, that the Lord is in the presence of them. So it represented the presence of the Lord. But these 12 tri- these twelve levels represent the 12 tribes. and verses 10 through 16, Um, there is a, a, a question that comes up as to what should we do with this man who was the son of an Israelite woman whose father was an Egyptian and he has blasphemed the Lord. Now they knew what to do with somebody who was an Israelite and that was they were to be put to death for blasphemy. But what do you do with somebody whose father is not an Israelite. Is it the same responsibility? Is it the same action? And the answer is, everybody must fear God. To despise God verbally or in action may not rank as a big deal to some, but evidently to God, he sees it as a serious crime. And so, the instruction that he gives in verse 16, it says, whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All the congregation shall certainly stone him, the stranger as well as him who was born in the land. When he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall uh, shall be put to death. So to uh, blaspheme the Lord um, was a serious offense. And the Lord is trying to say, I'm in your midst and I am holy. And you can't do that. And so... I think for many, their their senses would be shocked at the idea that you would have to walk with this kind of respect and this kind of reverence and worship to the Lord. But that is what the Lord wants from us. Now, listen, we don't go around stoning people today for things like that. We are not the nation of Israel. We do not fall under the, the civil government of the nation that God was establishing for them. This was a nation that was given laws on how to govern themselves, and so while it was in place and it was what was how the nation was supposed to function, we do not pick these things up and then pull them over into you know, the secular governments and then begin to pick and choose which ones we're going to 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 walk out. So you know we don't we're not going to stone anybody um, because of this. If you do, you're probably going to end up in jail. So. This is kind of how we make the distinction, though. Um, And, you know, if you are new to our study here through the Old Testament, we have spent a lot of time talking about how we are not under the law. Um, We are not under the civil aspects of the law. We are not under the ceremonial aspects of the law. And so, um, you know, this is how you kind of, well, do we do this today? No, we, we don't do this today because that was for them, and the law has now Passed away, and so the church does not fall under that. Although you can find in church history um, different kings, different um, religious leaders at time who would take elements of this and they would try to make that a part of the government of the day. Anyway, just just kind of a a little little thought for us to consider. Now, verses 17 through 23, he begins to talk about um, if you commit a particular crime, that it should. It should be in, the punishment should be in keeping, which is interesting coming out of the one where if you blaspheme the Lord, he shall be put to death. The next verses then talk about um, basically an eye for an eye and tooth for tooth. Um, it says, and whoever, verse 17, whoever kills any man shall surely be put to death. Whoever kills an animal shall make it good, an animal for an animal. If a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor, as he has done so, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he has caused disfigurement of a man, so shall it be done to him. And whoever kills an animal shall restore it, but whoever kills a man shall be put to death. You shall have the same law for the stranger and for one from your own country, for I am the Lord your God. Verse 23, then Moses spoke to the children of Israel and uh, and they took outside the camp him who had cursed and stoned him with stones, so the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded. So the, the punishment must meet the crime. The punishment for blasphemy is death. This is how serious it is to blaspheme our Lord. It is no small deal. But now some of you probably are thinking about what Jesus said, that you know, it should be an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. Um, and that if somebody slaps you on the cheek, though, you know, turn and offer your other cheek. So which is it? Is it eye for eye, tooth for tooth? Or is it, if somebody does something wrong to you, you know, forgive it, let it move on. And I think what is so important as we think about the Sermon on the Mount, when Jesus said, if somebody slaps you on the you know, right cheek, turn and let them slap the other also, um, is and, and he begins it by saying, "You've said and you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth." Well, this is where they heard it, but this was instruction for the civil government. This was not instruction for you and an altercation you had with your your uh, your neighbor that didn't require the civil government. And so they had come to the place where, and the idea here is, is that when the government is going to be um, observing a crime and then trying it and then punishing it makes certain that you don't overpunish or underpunish. It should be an appropriate punishment for the crime. So, what people had done in Jesus' day, they had taken this and they began to apply it to their own personal life. So, if you're walking down the road, there's no historical account of this. I'm just trying to paint a picture of this. But if you're walking down the road and you bumped into somebody accidentally, you a person will say, eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. And they're going to come up and they're going to you know, hip check you. And like, listen, I didn't want to do that. But you know what the Bible says, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. And Jesus says, oh, why don't you try turning the other cheek? They said, you're, you're not in a courtroom. You're, you're in a personal relationship with somebody. And so what we read here is for the magistrates. What Jesus spoke of. And the Sermon on the Mount was for how we are to walk with one another. If events end up before a magistrate, then they should apply this. So I think sometimes we're confused. It's like, well, which is it? Well, I mean, on a personal level, forgive. Don't retaliate. Um, But in, in you know, in a courtroom, if a crime's been committed, then those that are ruling over that situation, they need to make certain that they do it appropriately. So Th- that's kind of chapter 24, just some, some random, uh, starts out kind of consistent, you know, right? you got the, you know, the, the lamb stand, you got the showbread and so forth, but then it ends with um, how to deal with offenses in the land. Chapter 25 um, is going to take us into um, so a discussion about the year of Jubilee, the sab- sabbatical year of rest, and God's promise of provision during that rest. And we're going we're to find that the number seven is used a lot. You're you probably are already aware of this, that the number seven in the Bible is an often used number. Um, Israel's calendar functioned on a series of seven. Um, seven weeks after Passover came Pentecost, the seven month of the year. Introduced the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of Atonement, and the Feast of Tabernacles. The seventh day was the Sabbath, the day of rest. Every seventh year was to be a year that they did not farm the land. It was a year of rest. After seven sabbatic years, or uh, you know, 49 years, you had the year of Jubilee, So the seven is is an often repeated number. In Daniel chapter 9, when God gave Daniel um, an overview of the prophecy for the nation of Israel, he said there will be 70 weeks or 77-year periods of time. So again, you see the number 70. 69 of those 70 are fulfilled, and there only remains one last seven-year period for Israel's history which is fulfilled in the book of Revelation, chapters 6 through 19, called the Great Tribulation. But the number 7 is prominent um, from beginning to end in the Bible. It's, It's a significant number. But let's read verses 1 through 7 and just kind of find out what we have here as it relates to the sabbatical year of rest. And the Lord spoke to Moses on Mount Sinai, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, When you come into the land which I give you, then the land shall keep a Sabbath to the Lord. Rest. Six years you shall sow your field, and six years you shall prune your vineyard and gather its fruit. But in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land. A Sabbath to Yahweh. You shall neither sow your field nor prune your vineyard. What grows of it, of its own accord, of your harvest, you shall not reap, nor gather the grapes of your unintended vine, for it is a year of rest to the land. And the Sabbath produce of the land shall be food for you. For you, your male and your female servants, your hired man, And the stranger who dwells with you. For your livestock and the beasts that are in your land, all its produce shall be for food. Now you have to look at this and just think, could you imagine if you were a farmer and you got an entire year off? At least of a lot of your responsibilities, right? I mean, so yeah, every every seventh day you were to rest. Every seventh year um, the land was to rest. And so... This is something, though, that they really struggled with. As a nation, uh, we don't see them ever fulfilling uh, this. There's no evidence that they ever did this. And as a result of this, God is going to take them out of their land. And he's going to take them in exile over to Babylon. And they are going to be in Babylon. Does anybody know how long the, the exile was? 70 years. 70 years and what scripture says is this is going to happen because you never let the land rest which means for 490 years they never let the land rest let me read to you 2nd chronicles 36 verses 20 and 21 and those who escaped who escaped from the sword he carried away to babylon where they became servants to him and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of persia to fulfill The word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah until the land enjoyed her Sabbaths. As long as she lay desolate, she kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So for 490 years, they never did this. God says, you owe me. I'm kicking you out of the land and my land is going to get rest for 70 years. The Lord pays attention to what he um, has to say. So you know, this is, this is, I mean, if they would have obeyed it, I mean, this would have been a wonderful, wonderful blessing for them. Now, in verses 8 through 17, um, we, we find out about the year of Jubilee. And um, this is, you know, after 49 years. So um, it says, and you shall count seven Sabbaths of a year for yourself, seven times seven years, and the time of the seven Sabbaths of years, Shall be to you for 49 years. Then you shall cause the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound on the 10th day of the seventh month, on the Day of Atonement. You shall make the trumpet to sound throughout your land. And you shall consecrate the 50th year and proclaim liberty throughout all the land of its inhabitants. It shall be a Jubilee for you, and each of you shall return to his possession, and each of you shall return to his family. And he's going to go into the details. So, What was common in this day was that if you own this land, and, of course, everybody in Israel was given an allotment of land, right, during the days of Joshua. And so this became the family land, and it was never to go outside of the family. But if you had, let's say, as a farmer, you had one year where the pestilence took it away. The next year you had this crazy fire. And then the third year you had the the Midianites come and raid your harvest, you're pretty much done after three years. I mean, you're not going to sus- be able to survive or sustain it. So what are you going to do? Well, you could sell your, sell your land to somebody else, and they would give you a payment. So let's say you sold your 100 acres for $100,000 um, is the value of it. And you have, um, uh, but at the, at, the, at the year of Jubilee, this is going to come back to you. You're not going to pay anything. It's just going to come back to you. So then the land was prorated, the sale of the land was prorated based upon the year of Jubilee. So your maximum value for your land would be the 51st year, if you follow me. 49 years is the year of Jubilee. The 50th year, um, everything goes back. So let's say you sell it in the, you know, the well, the, in the 50th year, you sell it right back. Well, you're, you're gonna get the full 100,000. But if you, know, you go halfway through, And, um, you know, you're 24 and a half years in, you're going to get 50,000 for it and and so on. But this could also not be only for land. It could also be for you. You could sell yourself into the service of somebody else. So you could go to somebody and say, I sold my land and I'm still not making it. You know, I'm a good worker. I want to work for you. And so then there would be this. But in the year of Jubilee, it was an excited, the trumpets would sound and everybody was liberated. All their land came back. You were no longer a servant. You were no longer a slave, if they obeyed the Lord. And so this was, was an exciting time for them. This was God's way to make certain that generational poverty didn't exist in the family. They always had the opportunity to start afresh and to, um, to do this. So the year of Jubilee is a big deal. Um, and you just imagine if... Um, if, you know, we're in the, you know, the, almost you know, here in the 49th year, and your mortgage and your car payments and everything that you owe is wiped clean. I mean, yeah, you would, it would be a triumphant time when the year of Jubilee came around. Now, the Lord asking them to not sow the land um, in that seventh year, that was a big deal. So we, we, we come to this again in verse 18. Uh, verse 8, chapter 25, verse 18. And let's read, he says, so you shall observe my statutes and keep my judgments and perform them and you will dwell in the land in safety. Then the land will yield its fruit and you will eat your fill and dwell there in safety. And if you say, what shall we eat in the seventh year? Wait, you want me to not work the land? What are we We're going to starve? Since we shall not sow nor gather in our produce, then I will command my blessing on you in the sixth year, and it will bring pr- forth produce enough for three years. Wow. Lord's like, listen, I'm giving you a deal of a lifetime. If you will obey me in the sixth year, I'm going to give you the tri- a triple blessing so that in the seventh year, the land rests, and you get to rest. You get to, you know, try some new ventures. And you shall sow in the eighth year, and eat the pro and eat old produce until the ninth year. Until its produce comes in, you shall eat of the whole old harvest. So they had to have faith. Do you think this took faith to do this? Well, must have taken a lot of faith because none of them ever did it. You know, they didn't ever give the land the rest because it's like, oh yeah, year one, man. We're next time we're gonna do this. We're gonna let the land rest. But then you get into the end of you know the sixth year, you're like, nah, I don't know. I mean. I don't know if we're going to have enough. I mean, look, we had, look at this great harvest. We had triple the amount. Isn't that amazing? Just think next year, if we even have a normal, how much further ahead? And it's like, no, no, no. That is to provide for you. And so they had to have faith, but they thought they knew better. And they were wrong, and their future generations paid dearly. So often we think we are in control. But what can we do apart from the laws of nature functioning God, as God has ordained them? Well, I've got to do this every single year. Every single year I've got to plant the, the, the crop and i got to harvest it. You know, that needs to happen. You know, you put it in the ground, but what causes the, the, that seed to germinate? What, what can you do to make that seed germinate? God has written in that information to that seed. You, you know, so the farmer can think, "Well, I've got to do this because I'm in control. If I don't do this, I'm not going to have anything to eat." But wait, you're not in control of anything, really. Can you make the water fall from the sky? Can you keep the pestilence away? Can you make the earth, you know, give the nutrients that's needed? Can you cause the seed to germinate? You're not in charge of anything. And whatever we are in charge of, it's the skill and it's the talents it's the ability that the Lord has given us to do any of that. And so what is the takeaway for us? Well, I think that you the know, takeaway is when we begin to think that I've got to work, 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 more work. I have no time to serve Jesus. I've got to do this. I've got to do more. I don't have time to be there for my family. I don't have time to worship because I've got to do all this stuff. You can't work tomorrow if God doesn't give you the ability to do it. If you don't, if God doesn't wake you with strength, you're not going to do it. If all of a sudden everything gets scrambled in your head, like Nebuchadnezzar, what are you going to do? And so we think we're really in control. I've got to do this and I don't have time for that. And the Lord's like, but I have told you to seek first my kingdom. And you're saying you don't have time to do that because you've got to work on all of this other stuff. But I'm the one that's giving you the ability to work on that stuff anyway. And so we, we, we think we are in charge when in reality we're not. And God in his grace wakes us up to that, doesn't he? And so I think the lesson for us is that what does God require of my life? Open up the scriptures, read and find out what he requires from you and do it. Like, well, I don't see how it's going to work. I don't get this, you know, work the land for six and then there's going to be triple the amount for the next few years. I just, that doesn't make sense. It just doesn't work that way. Unless God says it works that way. And then it does work that way. And so this is where faith comes in. I, I believe in the Lord. Now, in verses 23 and 24, uh, through 34, excuse me, we get information about the kinsman redeemer. So let's say... And, you know, the year of Jubilee just happened. And then in the, you know, the third year after the year of Jubilee, you sell all your stuff. And you're like, man, we've got to wait 46 more years to be set free. I don't know if this is ever going to come about. Well, the Lord made a provision to free themselves from slavery and also to free their land from whom you sold it uh, to. And this is called the law of the kinsman redeemer. So a near relative, maybe found out later that you you were too embarrassed to say anything to them, and then they end up finding that you sold the land. You're like, wait a minute, this is family land. And you sold it to these, you know, the the tribe of Asher. Why would you do that? You know, this is the tribe of Dan. We have we got to keep it all within our own clan here. And so then that that family member could go and say, listen. Um, you know, he sold the land to you at a value of 46 years. And so I'm going to pay that off. And that land is going to come back into the family. And so then it could, it could be in the family. And, and so this is one of the ways in which it worked. It also um, was such that if you, your brother or near of kin um, died and didn't have any children, that you could raise up children for uh, him through that widowed wife. And this kind of leads us into the whole book of Ruth. This is a great story. I don't know if any of you have read the book of Ruth lately. But Naomi and her family sold their land in Israel and they fled to, uh, to Moab in a time of famine. And while in Moab, Naomi's husband dies along with her two sons. Uh, Naomi returned to Israel with along with her daughter-in-law, Ruth, who had no children. They had nothing. They returned to the land, Bethlehem, at the time of harvest. So Ruth, as a widow, along with her mother-in-law, were really, first of all, to be a woman without any any land, any provision, any uh, men in your life, was a precarious position to be. But God had made a provision in his welfare program that when you were going through and you were uh, harvesting your crop, you couldn't go to the edges of your, your field, and if you couldn't go through it a second time, and whatever the harvesters dropped on the ground had to stay on the ground. And so you'd have the harvesters going through, and behind them would be those which are called the anybody know what the word is? the gleaners. They would pick up what had been dropped. And so Naomi says, "You're the young one, Ruth." Go and do this gleaning. So she goes, she goes into the field of Boaz. And Boaz sees this single woman out there doing this work. He's like, Who is that lady? He's a single guy, and um, she must she was a looker, and she's like, Who is that? I said, Well, that's 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 Ruth. She's a Moabitess. that's Naomi's daughter-in-law. The, you know, her husband died and didn't have any children. He's like, Will you make sure when she comes, if she walks ahead of the, of the harvesters, don't stop her. Just let her go. And if she comes up behind you, drop a whole bunch. And so at the end of the day, she's going home with all of this grain. And she walks into the house and Naomi's like, what in the world? How, how, nobody gets this kind of amount of grain. She goes, I don't know. I just just did it. She goes, whose field were you in? Said, Boaz. And then boom, this chapter comes to mind, the kinsman redeemer. Because that Boaz was a, a near relative and able to buy not only the land that they had sold, but also to raise up a child for um, uh, his deceased relative, the, 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 uh, the husband of, of Ruth that had died. So eventually the story unfolds and this is exactly what happens. But there was one that was closer of a relative than Boaz, and that was Boaz's brother. He comes and says, hey, that field is available. He's like, that's a good field, I'm going to buy it. He goes, yeah, by the way, um, he has a widow and she has no child, so you get to get her too. He's like, I don't think my wife's going to go for that. You can have the field and the wife. He's like, okay, if you insist. Which is what he wanted the whole time, so he gets the field and he gets the bride. He is the goel. He is that kinsman redeemer. Not only does Boaz, a Jew, get a bride, but he gets what? A Gentile bride. And as you look at this, Jesus said, all the law and the prophets, they speak of me. Well, how does this speak of him? Because Jesus. Then there are three things about the kinsman redeemer. They had to be near of kin. They had to have the resources to buy the land back. And they had to be willing to do it. You had to have those three things working for you. And so in the case of Boaz's brother, um, nearer of kin, he had the money, but he didn't have the will. Um, And so Boaz had all three. Jesus came and he took on human flesh that he might be nearer of kin to humanity. He is able to pay the price because he was spotless and he was willing to make the sacrifice. Nevertheless, Lord, not my will, but your will be done. And so Jesus came. But what was the redemption price that he paid? First Peter 1, 18 and 19. For as much as you know that you are not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. And he came and he redeemed us. He was he's in the family. He's he he came and took on human flesh. He is able. He's the only one that's able to do that. And he was willing to lay down his life. Nobody takes my life. I lay it down. And he laid it down that he might redeem us. And so not only did he redeem all of mankind, but interestingly enough, Jesus also gets a what? A Gentile bride coming together in one new family called the Church with Jews. So, I mean, isn't it amazing how the Word of God, written all these years later, and if you've ever read this before, maybe never pondered um, how this could be in fulfillment, I mean, right now you're just like, I can't believe that. I mean, that's such a beautiful picture. And it is exactly what the Lord has done for us. In verses 35 through 38, Um, He tells them to not take advantage of the poor, but to help them. And then in verses 39 through 55, um, he gives them some laws relating to slavery. And um, I want to read a, a bit of this. Okay, so we're in chapter 25, verse 39. And if one of your brethren, so another Israelite, who dwells by you becomes poor and sells himself to you, you shall not compel him to serve as a slave. So there's a distinction between a servant and a slave in, in, in these words. He shall be as a hired servant and a sojourner he shall be with you and he shall serve you until the year of Jubilee and then he shall depart from you. He and his children with him. You don't get to keep his kids. And shall return to his own family. He shall return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him with rigor, but you shall fear your God. And as for your male and female slaves whom you may have from the nations, so not Israelite, that are around you, From them you may buy male and female slaves. Moreover, you may buy the children of the strangers who dwell among you and their families who are with you, which they beget in your land, and they shall become your property. And you may take them as an inheritance for your children after you to inherit them as a possession. They shall be permanent slaves. But regarding your brethren, the children of Israel, you shall not rule over one with rigor." Now if a sojourner or a stranger close to you becomes rich and one of your brethren who dwells by him becomes poor and sells himself to the stranger or sojourner close to you or to a member of the stranger's family, after he is sold, he may be redeemed again. One of his brothers may redeem him. So again, this kinsman redeemer picture. Or his uncle or his uncle's son may redeem him. Or anyone who's near of kin to him and his family may redeem him. Or if he's able, he may redeem himself. Thus he shall reckon with him who bought him the price of his release according to the number of years. So again, a prorated price. So as you read this, um, you know, we're okay with the first part of somebody selling themselves into slavery. And then he says, hey, treat them with kindness. Don't treat them with rigor. But then we come to this section, but if there's somebody of the other nations, and this happens... Well, then you can own them as slave and they can actually become your property and they can actually pass down generationally. And I would imagine that when most of us read that, it feels very uncomfortable. It feels uncomfortable to me to read that. So I want to dive into this a little bit, but let me just give you the the short answer up front. We have to trust the Lord who he knows what he's doing. And while we stand on the other side of um, a slave trade that is a black mark on this country. And not just ours, but on our country. Civil war was fought, people were enslaved, people were mistreated, people were killed, people were taken advantage of. And we know that and we see that and we understand, I would hope you do, that this was an evil thing. But yet we read here of this going on. So, How do we begin to answer this? And let me say, first of all, um, I'm not going to be able to give you the 11th commandment that says, thou shall not commit slavery. It's not in there. You can look for it. It's not in there. But I think there are some other things that are part of this topic and what the Bible has to say that we need to think upon. Um, So many will look at this and they say, this is why I don't believe in the scriptures are being inspired of God, if I can't trust it on this issue, how can I trust it about marriage or sexuality or even my salvation? But I want us to think about what both the Old Testament and the New Testament has to say, and I want to think about the end product of what has come about because of these truths, because of these principles. So in the Old Testament, laws were given that limited slavery, forbade harsh treatment and that was so common in the world. In the New Testament, um, it focuses upon the heart of an individual. And it seeks to have a collective group of uh, uh, individuals to end up eventually bringing a change about. It. And, and that is what happened. So there are many social issues in the New Testament that are not addressed, that are that are corrupt and sinful and evil, and an answer is not given to go and overturn these institutions. But if you're a slave, you're told how to behave yourself. If you're a master, you're told how to conduct yourself. And so we'll look we'll look a little bit more at that in just a moment. But in the first century world, um, there was about 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. Um, so just a huge number now some i think in trying to christians pastors and trying to answer this and say but you know the slavery in the, in the in the at this time was not as bad now if you were an israelite servant it was not as bad if you were a slave inside an israeli family and they obeyed the law it was not as bad But in the first century world, when all these slaves were part of the Roman Empire, to think that it was not bad, is that's not real. Could you have a good master? Yes, you could. You could have a good master. That that is completely possible. But you were mistreated and you were abused. Often, this is the way it, it took place. So, I don't want to sugarcoat it. I'm trying to just take an honest look at this. Um, and there are some differences. I, you know, we don't so much see this today, but somebody could go. And as we just read, they could sell themselves into slavery or into servitude to pay debts, to serve out a time. And, and so there, there are some distinctions. But one thing that is so significant is Exodus 21, 16 and Exodus 21, 16. And we studied this already. What we find out is that the practice of slave trade was forbidden. In other words, you couldn't go and kidnap somebody and go and sell them in slavery, which is what the whole system here in in our country was based upon. You know, you had those in West Africa that were kidnapping their own people, and then they were selling them to uh, Britain or whoever the the transporters were they got to. Different locations around the world, and they were sold to those people. And and so there was this whole um, corrupt evil system. But in Exodus 21, 16, there was a limitation placed upon that. You couldn't go kidnap somebody and sell them. Um, In Exodus 21, 20, you couldn't treat your slave harshly, and if you did and they died, you could you could lose your slave if you harmed them and they lived. And if they died, then there was going to be a punishment that was going to fall upon you. Um, Your slaves were to be given a day of rest. Your slaves were to be able to to participate in the feast and the festivals. They were able to enter into the spiritual life of the country. And they were not to be sexually abused. All of those things, those four things in the Old Testament, make... Um, owning slaves very different than what would have been like around the nation. So for, you, know, you couldn't go kidnap somebody and sell them. You, if harsh treatment was forbidden, and it was punishable if you did that. They were to be brought into the life and the worship of Yahweh, which speaks of the respect that, they had, um, that, that was to be shown to these people, that they could be people that could actually worship. And they were um, not to be sexually abused. In the New Testament, again, we find that slave trade was forbidden. In 1 Timothy 8, chapter 1, verses 8 through 11, it says, But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, knowing this, that the law was not made for a righteous person, but for the lawless and insubordinate, for the ungodly and for sinners, for the unholy and profane, for murderers, of fathers and murderers of mothers for manslayers for fornicators for sodomites for kidnappers now we read that translation of kidnapping and we think of somebody going and taking a kid from a family and holding them ransom for money but actually um, and this comes from the complete biblical library andropodistase is the word that's used for kidnappers and and i think i is it up there? okay good it's up there and, and I did a search on five of the top um, lexicons, Greek lexicons, dictionaries, for this word. And they all almost said exactly this. Andropodistes is used of those who trafficked in human beings, whether by enslaving free men or stealing slaves for others, uh, of others for resale. So in the New Testament... It's in Exodus as well. This was forbidden. There, a, there are ways in which it did function and it did happen, but it was forbidden. So if this verse would have been obeyed, guess what would have never happened in America? If the church and then society would have obeyed this, there would have never been any West African that would have ever been sold on the blocks in South Carolina. It wouldn't have happened because it was illegal to do that. It was forbidden in scripture to do this. Now, does this rise to the level of, and thou shall not, you know, it doesn't quite reach that point that we maybe would long for, but it does limit that. There are other things that we should see that happen in the New Testament, not just the forbidding of of slave trade, um, but it talks about how All people should be shown love and respect. All people should be shown love and respect. That certainly was not something that was going on in the slave trade in our country. Did you know that in the first century world that slaves were, um, most of the time, they were never given They were given a simple do this, do that. But they were never educated. They were never given a kind of like a moral set of instruction. And it certainly would have been odd to receive moral instruction in the company of your master. But why is that significant? Because of the New Testament. Who does the Lord Lord address the letters to so often? It's both to master and to servant. And And they sat in the same little home fellowship. And as the letter arrived, it was being read, and masters, like Ephesians or Colossians, treat your servants knowing that you're going to give an account, that you have a master. Well, the slaves, were maybe they worked for them, were sitting right there. And then it, it was an exhortation to the servants, show respect to your masters. But that Paul or whoever would even engage the servant with instruction, it may not seem like any significant deal to us, but in the world that existed at that time, it was a big deal that you would give them instruction. It was a show of respect for who they were. So, so much of this become the seeds for which allow for eventually the political overturn of slavery. Let me read to you a quote from William Barclay. He says, there are some things which cannot be achieved suddenly and for which the world must wait. Until the leaven works. What Christianity did was to introduce a new relationship between individuals in which all external differences were abolished. What's that? There is neither slave nor free. And so these were seeds that were planted. Now, there's neither slave nor free man before the Lord. But in the society of the world, those relationships did exist. But that's not how the Lord said it. But these became the seeds. That were planted in the heart. You can't do slave trade. Moral instructions given. Paul writes to Philemon, you need to set this this servant free. He can be used for for good things. And so these types of things were at work. So God never intended for man to own another man. Never do you find the Lord saying this is a good thing. But he addressed what was going on in society and he limited it and he gave some guidance to it. And while we may look and wish that that God would have taken a different approach, that's not the approach he took. The same could be said of divorce. You know, when Jesus spoke to them, he says, divorce was given to you because of the hardness of your heart. It's not what God wanted, but he saw a world where women were being Kind of you know mistreated and thrown aside, and nobody could ever marry them again, and they were still considered to be this this man's wife, and so they were in a very vulnerable position. So a certificate of divorce was given. If you if you despise her, then give her the certificate of divorce. Don't just let her languish and die um, without any care or help. And he says, but that was given because of your hard hearts. That wasn't given because that's what I wanted. It's given to provide a provision, and so. The Lord looked at that and he saw the evilness of man. And I think there, I'm not going to say it's exactly the same, but in a similar way, there was a social issue and woe that the Lord tried to address differently. Well, how about that statement that the seeds of leaven, the little yeast was put into the lump of society uh, in Christianity and that it worked. I did not find a second source on this, but um, I'm going to read to you um, what well, one person says and, and argues that the first writer to call for the abolishing of slavery was an early church father. Um, in the 330s, 330 A.D., and he called for it. His name is Gregory of Nyssa. Let me just read you a paragraph. The Bible may not give us the elusive 11th commandment, thou shalt not commit slavery, but given the bent of the Bible's ethical codes, it's hardly surprising that one of the first writers, and perhaps the first writer, ever to challenge slavery as an institution was not a pagan Greek or a Roman, but a Christian church father. Gregory of Nyssa, Gregory born around the same time as Constantine's death in the 330s, raged against the sinful presumption of enslaving people created in the image of God. If, quote, if God does not enslave what is free, who is he that sets his own power above God? He wrote, this is what he wrote. That was kind of the statement. And then Kyle Harper responds. He says, it is no small distinction to be the earliest human to have left an argument for the basic injustice of slavery. It came from within the church. In England, it was an on-fire Jesus freak by the name of William Wilberforce, who in 1883 finally saw the parliament put into, uh, uh, into law the abolishing of slavery. They made it illegal to do slave trade. That was in England, it came in England first. Eventually it happened in America, but it came from other Christian men like Benjamin Rush and even Frederick Douglass, a believer, a African himself, but he was a, a, a an articulate a politician who argued for this freedom as a believer, Benjamin Rush. And, and so it is, when you look back in history, you're going to be hard-pressed to find somebody who fought for uh, abolition of, uh, of slavery that was not a believer. And so we may not like the process by which it came, and we maybe have thought it should have happened differently, but I would be very careful to do that because the Lord has his purposes. The Lord has his ways in which he was accomplishing things. So... I did want to take the time. It is a difficult passage to read, but I thought it was important for us to understand what else the Bible has to say about this topic because it is so often left out of the discussion. So that that kind of brings us to the end of chapter 25, and I thought I was going to finish Leviticus. I could finish it really, really fast. I'm in in a quandary because I don't have much here. Um, Yeah. I'm just, I'm going to finish it probably and just give me, give me 10 more minutes and I'll be done. And chapter 26, the, it moves on. So I, you know, in going through all of that, I hope you'll take the time to go back, study these passages and see it. Realize that God's ways are not our ways and his ways are higher than our ways. You know who he is, trust his character. Trust his ways. You don't understand and I don't understand and if you feel up to it, you can ask him when you get there. Hey, God, why did you? I don't know if you're going to feel like saying why, you you know, challenge him. But if you want to, you can try it and let me know how it goes. I'm not going to ask first, but you can. So, um, but this is, this is how it's, it's resulted. And now it's so clear to us, you know, as in society even, not just the church. Well, chapter 26, verses 1 and 2, don't worship idols, keep the Sabbath, maintain reverence for the sanctuary. Now, there's two big sections here. Um, In verses 3 through 13, God promises blessing for their obedience. So in verses 4 and 5, what's going to be blessed? Your crops. The land, you're going to have peace, verse 6. Verses 7 and 8, you're going to have victory over your enemies. In verse 9, you're going to become a numerous people. I'm going to bless you as a nation. In verse 11, I'm going to meet with you and I'm gonna walk among you. I'm gonna be in your midst. Verse 11, I will set my tabernacle among you and my soul shall not abhor you. I will walk among you and and be your God and you shall be my people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt that you should not be their slaves. I've broken the bands of your yoke and made you walk upright. So this is the promise of blessing. But in verses 14 through 39, there's a promise of chastisement for disobeying. In verse 16, they would have disease and their enemies would overcome them. In verses 19 and 20, the land would be unfruitful. In verse 21, plagues would come upon them. In verse 22, wild beasts. Verse 25, pestilence. Verses 26 through 29, you're going to have famine that's going to come on you. Uh, Verse 32, cities are going to be destroyed. And eventually in verse 33, you're going to go into exile. But look at verse 40 through 46 with me, because here's a promise of restoration. He says, this may all happen, but I promise this also. But if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers with their unfaithfulness in which they were unfaithful to me, and they also have walked contrary to me, and then I also have walked contrary to them and have brought them into the land of their enemies. If their uncircumcised hearts are humbled and they accept their guilt, then I will remember my covenant with Jacob and my covenant with Isaac and my covenant with Abraham. I will remember. I will remember the land. The land also shall be left empty by them and they will enjoy it Sabbath. So there it is again, right? You're gonna, he's going to get his 70 years that they didn't honor. And he just goes through and he talks about this Restoration, verse 45. For their sake, I will remember the covenant of their ancestors, whom I brought out of the land of Egypt in the sight of the nations, that I may be their God. I am the Lord. These are the statutes and judgments and the laws which the Lord made between himself and the children of Israel on Mount Sinai by the hand of Moses. So, if they confess their iniquity and the iniquity of their fathers, and if they will humble themselves, the Lord says, I'll bring you back. I will bring you back. If you want to hear one of those prayers of confession, here it is, write it down. Daniel 9, verses 1 through 19. Daniel recognizes in Daniel 9 that the 70 years are nearly up and he offers up a national prayer of repentance for both himself and his forefathers and he humbles himself before the Lord. You might want to read that on your own. Chapter 27 um, there are some laws concerning dedication. So if you felt excited about your walk with the Lord and you decide, you know what, I'm going to give this animal to the Lord. And um, you take it down and on the way home, you're like, wait a minute, why did I do that? I need that thing to plow my field. That was dumb. Why did I do that? What am I going to do? Well, you could go back and you could get it, but you were going to pay 120% of its value. So when you read through it, verses 1 through 8, it talks about the dedication of people. In verses 9 through 13, of animals, of a house, in verses 14 and 15, of a field. You couldn't dedicate firstborn animals because they were already dedicated to the Lord, Exodus 13 too. But if you made these dedications to the Lord, which you could do, which is over and above um, the tithe, you just weren't wanting to give an offering to the Lord, but you ended up regretting it later. You could go get it back, but you were going to pay an extra 20 percent to remind you that you should not be rash with your dedication. And with your mouth. Proverbs 20 verse 25. It is a snare for a man to devote rashly something as holy and afterward to reconsider his vows. It's a snare, and it's costly. So today, does, can we just say whatever we want to the Lord and commit to it and then walk away and no big deal because we're under the new covenant. It doesn't matter. God's grace, it's all right. I commit things to the Lord. You know what? I'm not asking for 20%, okay, over and above what you maybe dedicated to the Lord. and I'm not going there. But I think we should be very careful when we open our mouth and dedication to the Lord. Lord, I'm going to do this then do it. Follow it out. Now, if it ends up, obviously not something sinful, but you know, we need to be mindful that what we commit to the Lord that we actually follow through with. I mean, that, that works between us. You expect somebody to be true to their word to you. So if you've dedicated something to the Lord, I think you should carry it out unless there's clear indication that you shouldn't. So, you know, I've been actually pondering something in my own mind that's related to this. It's like, all right, Lord, I'm, I'm thinking I need to give something to you, and I've been praying about it. And I've, today, when I was going over this, I'm like, mm, I better be. I need to really be mindful before I, I commit to, to doing that. Because once I do it, I need to follow through, and I, can't, I shouldn't just be backing out. All right, so maybe there's not a, somebody that's gonna hold me to 120% value, But my word to the Lord should be true. And he is holy. And he should be reverenced. The book of Leviticus, a practical guide for both the worshiper and the priest. It helped with a lot of their calendar. It helped with how to come and worship before the Lord. How to seek the Lord. How to come and worship this holy God. But God is still holy today. And we are still called to walk in holiness. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Having these promises. Do you know what the promises are that precede it? It's almost word for word what we just read in Leviticus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6. We read, therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Therefore, having these promises. So the Lord talked about being in the midst of the nation of Israel. And he says, you're going to be my people. And so knowing our relationship with the Lord, just like for the nation of Israel, and having him in their midst, knowing that we are the people of God, we should walk in holiness. We should walk in holiness. We should be actually, as it says here, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. The word fear, I didn't look it up, but I know the common Greek word for it. And somebody else, if you know, you can look it up. But I bet this word for fear is phobos. It's where we get our word, anybody want to guess? Phobia. Phobia. Now, I'm not saying we should have a phobia about God but you get a sense of the power of this word. This isn't just simply, I respect him. It is that, but it's like he's a holy God who holds my next breath in his hand, who holds my eternity in his hand. I should perfect holiness in my life out of a a godly fear of who he is. And I shouldn't just go and live however I want to. So while Leviticus has a lot of laws, that have no application to us today, the principles of holiness and the principle of worshiping God and the principle of, of um, uh, having God in our midst, these are all things that transfer over into our walk with him today. And in such a wonderful way, Jesus is the substance of all of these shadows. And this is what we read in Scripture <laughs> Jesus said, Hey, the law and the prophets, it's all about me. It's all about me. And so may we learn to walk in holiness. Father, thank you for your word, your truth. We ask that you would you would strengthen our hands, Lord, to follow you completely and totally. That we hold nothing back. Lord, you are a good God and you are deserving of all things, Lord. And so may we perfect holiness out of fear of you, holy reverence and awe of who you are and what you've done, that you're in our lives, that you dwell in us. And Lord, we want to just thank you for this beautiful, beautiful picture that you painted of your son Jesus in this ancient book called Leviticus. That we can look back now with the, A clear view of Christ and we can see how he is a fulfillment of all of these things. And Lord, while we don't understand all things and we even have questions about why you did some things one way or not another, what we don't have a question about is that you are good and you are merciful and you are just and you are righteous. And there isn't one of us and there isn't all of us together that even begin to challenge how good and kind we on our best day, we don't even begin to rival your justice. So Lord, may we walk humbly with you. May we walk in fear of you. And Lord, we are grateful for those, that yeast, that, that leaven that you planted in the word of God and therefore in our hearts that has brought such transformation in our world. We thank you for it Lord and may we continue to be sensitive. May we be like those great men of history that walked with you and women who walked with you that were able to discern the great changes that needed to happen and that you would use a a man like William Wilberforce to totally transform a world and set people free. Lord, we're grateful that you used one of your servants to do that and for those that were used here. But Lord, may you give us that sensitivity for the hour in which we live. To see the things maybe that nobody else has seen. And to be kind and just and loving towards all people. In your name we pray. Amen.